Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. Chess Podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess Podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Just Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the January edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Taylor, an associate professor of English at Berry College in Metro Atlanta, who is here to talk to us about chess fiction. He is currently at work on chess and chessic motifs in English prose narrative since 1700, an annotated bibliography, a comprehensive work featuring approximately 2,000 entries. Taylor earned his PhD in English literature in 1995 at the University of Texas in Austin. He teaches freshman writing in medieval and Renaissance literature. He's published over 200 articles in various chess periodicals between 2002 and 2015, including the December 2012 Chess Life cover story, The White Collection, exploring the largest chess library in the world, which was awarded the best feature article by the Chess Journalists of of America. He has been editor of Georgia Chess and the Chess Journalist. His son, Paul Taylor, was an accomplished scholastic player who reached an expert rating, and his wife, Melinda Matthews, is our publications editor at U.S. Chess. Welcome to One Move at a Time, Mark Taylor. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. So let's get right into a bit of your chess history. What what has chess meant to you in your life? How did you get started and involved in it? Uh, Most of my life, chess has not meant very much. Uh, i probably learned to play it as a child, but uh, never took it very seriously. Uh, And it wasn't until um, I had a five-year-old son. uh, We were in a toy aisle at a store, and he pointed to a a chess set, and he said he wanted it. Uh, I don't think he knew anything about it, um, but I bought it for him. Uh, I tried to remember how to play, and we set it up, and we started playing these knockdown, drag-out games. And in a couple of months, he started beating me. And uh, that's actually how you and I first met as well. If I remember, it was a a chess tournament in Metro Atlanta where you were just, I I was covering it for Georgia Chess and you were, uh, I I think, just hanging around in in the lobby waiting for your son's game to complete. Yes, I was a new chess parent then. Um, uh, yeah, we had uh, met some people uh, who were uh, tournament players and introduced us to uh, the uh, Atlanta Chess Center. So that's where Paul got his start. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you know, while the kids are playing, the parents are sitting around waiting uh, for the children to finish. And so looking for something to do, I started uh, re- reading books uh, uh, 
novels about chess. Let's get right into that talk about chess fiction. I, I'd like to begin by talking about The Queen's Gambit, because as we're recording this at the end of uh, December of 2020, Queen's Gambit is still making a lot of news in both the chess world and in the mainstream press. I'm just curious that for someone who has maybe seen the series but has never read the book, what what are some of the maybe surprising differences that they might find between the uh, the written version and the Netflix series? Uh, well, it's been a very long time since I have uh, read the novel. Uh, one thing I understand um, from Bruce Pandolfini, who apparently was involved with both, is that Tevis really didn't take his advice. And so the novel has sometimes been criticized for not the chess itself technically not being as accurate as it could be, uh, whereas in the series, the chess is actually much better presented. Uh, and that's rather unusual because you think that an author in writing might take more care with the presentation, whereas uh, in a film or in a television show, they're just going for the glitz uh, and they're not really going to worry about the accuracy. So that that's a pleasant difference between the two. And, and that probably leads into a question about w what makes the difference between good chess fiction and, and bad chess fiction? Because I, I'm sure a lot of chess players would automatically say, well, bad chess fiction is just isn't presented accurately. But I suspect you have a different response to this. A somewhat different response, although I certainly respect any chess player uh, who would dismiss a work because the chess is bad. Uh, it's, a, it's very peculiar in chess fiction uh, that there is so much bad chess in the fiction. I mean, you could not imagine someone writing a novel about basketball or baseball and getting the technical aspects of the sports wrong. The whole thing would simply be condemned, right? And yet, in chess fiction, so many authors get away with, or they think they can get away with, <laughs> extremely bad presentations. Uh, you know, I, I've sometimes uh, uh, toyed with the idea of starting a website that would be devoted to bad chess fiction, and I would just put excerpts uh, that we could all laugh at. Uh, but I guess charity uh, uh, won the better part of me. I haven't done that. There's a lot. Uh, and the interesting thing is that sometimes the fiction as fiction is pretty good. It's just the handling of the chess that is bad. On the other hand, there are sometimes uh, chess players who turn uh, their hand to fiction. And maybe the fiction is not so great, but the chess therein is, is quite good. Uh, Grandmaster Andy Solstice wrote uh, a murder mystery uh, some years ago where he uh, included uh, several dozen actual annotated chess games. But you can imagine that with a structure so chess heavy, the narrative itself kind of buckles under the weight. So there, there's two kinds of bad chess fiction, one bad chess and the other bad narration. Yeah, I imagine if people want accurate chess and in, in their written word, the, there's an outlet for that in nonfiction chess books. Right. Uh, so as far as good chess fiction, um, well, first of all, for short fiction, um, I, I do have to recommend uh, the Mongoose Anthology, Masters of Technique, uh, 
which is edited by Howard Godowski. Um, Howard and I uh, had been corresponding a number of years ago, and we both lamented uh, over the lack uh, of fiction that was both good fiction and good chess. Uh, he actually did something about it, and he collected the best short stories uh, of chess fiction and put them together. Uh, this really is the best anthology uh, of chess fiction that you're likely to find. Uh, and there are <clears throat> maybe a dozen such anthologies out and about. And that book was published, if, if uh, my research was correct, in 2010? That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, 2010. And a disclaimer, I did write a foreword uh, for that book in which I uh, discuss a lot of these uh, these issues. And showing that you're, as an academic, you're infused with academic honesty. So <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> yes. um, so this probably, I suspect, was the germ of your idea for your uh, creating your bibliography. Uh, I, I mentioned it in the uh, in the opening. Uh, the the title, though the working title for you is Chess and Chessic Motifs in English Prose Narratives in 1700, an Annotated Bibliography. So is my supposition correct, or had you been thinking about this before? I had been thinking about it before, and yes, that is the working title. A good publisher may come up with a better title for that. Um, but as I said, you know, I was in the uh, Skittles room reading chess novels, and so I wanted to find more. So the first thing I did, of course, was went to the internet and started Googling. And uh, there were some um, lists of chess fiction that were posted. Uh, Bill Wall, I think, had uh, a rather large one. Uh, the problem is, is that it wasn't annotated. And so he'd give a title and I'd look and there'd be like maybe a paragraph of chess. It wasn't a chess novel at all. At all. Um, oh, Ian Fleming's, what is it? From Russia with Love has got one chess scene in it. Uh, it's rather well known because it uh, appeared in the movie, but there's no other chess in the book. So it's not a, a chess novel. So I, um, I was having trouble. Then I found a bibliography by another academic, Kester Svensson, published in 1950. It had about 500 uh, entries in it. Again, they were not annotated, and it was impossible to tell how much uh, chess or the quality of the chess in each entry. And so I thought, well, maybe I could update this bibliography since 1950, uh, there's probably a couple hundred more that I could add and I could annotate them. That's when I, I first got the idea. Now, had I not underestimated the task, I never would have taken it on uh, because I've got about 2,000 entries now, most of them since 1950. Uh, so there, there has been a real explosion of chess in uh fiction. And a lot of times it's very minor. Uh, you've got a chess set in a room or you've got two people playing, uh, but it's just uh, as an aside, uh, you know, chess is decoration is what I call it. It helps to set the scene. Or you have these Cold War novels where the two spies are playing chess 
as a way of testing their wits against each other. Um, or, you know, they're secreting uh, microfilms in chess pieces or, or that kind of thing. So, you know, as far as being able to understand what kind of chess was in any given narrative, I had to actually read it and then annotate and and uh, uh, report on how much chess is in each each work. And so this is a very, very long work. You can imagine out of 2000 entries uh, trying to annotate uh, not all of them, but but most of them. And does the fiction element, if something is if just appears, say, in a screenplay, that's an original work. Uh, is it does that make the cut or do you limit it to novels or and short stories? Uh, if I can find the uh, script itself uh, that the script is published or somehow made available, then yes, I, I do include it. Uh, what I have not included is are things written in verse because that just would have made it the uh, bibliography impossible uh, or. Um, cartoons or graphic novels, uh, that kind of thing. So it has to be in print, in words, and it has to resemble a narrative. Uh, Now, I like to use the word narrative rather than fiction because I do include memoir. Uh, For example, we we can't mention memoir without mentioning uh, Fred Weitzkin's Searching for Bobby Fischer, which I think has become the quintessential chess memoir. So you do include nonfiction to a degree? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, The point is really is not whether it's fiction or not, but if it were not true, would we still be interested in it? And so you you might read a newspaper report of uh, a chess uh, event, okay? If that were not a factual presentation of something that actually happened, we wouldn't want to read it. It wouldn't be interesting. As a narrative itself, it doesn't work. But a memoir, even though it may be true, you're interested in it because of what it has to say about chess, what it has to say about life, whether it actually happened or not. We should probably take a step back and explain exactly what a bibliography is and and even further what an annotated bibliography is. So uh, please have at it. Okay. Well, a bibliography uh, is a uh, list of uh, works, usually published, but not always, uh, that has some common subject or some common theme or some common focus. So that if you want to know, well, I want to... Uh, read a book about, well, let's say I want to read an opening book about uh, the Rui Lopez. How many books about the Rui Lopez have been written? Hundreds, right? Well, where do you go if you want to find a list of all those opening books on the Rui Lopez? You would have to go to a specialized bibliography, uh, which is written by some poor drudge who has gone through Uh, library stacks and other people's bibliographies uh, and has compiled uh, a comprehensive list of all these books. And then you can go through them. So you've got a list of a few hundred books about the Rui Lopez, but out of these, which one should you read, depending on what you want? Uh, 
Well, in that case, it helps as if the bibliographer has added some kind of a note indicating something about that work. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it outdated? Is it a classic? Um, or does it deal with certain aspects of the opening rather than other aspects? And so these annotations help to guide the reader toward the book that you want to read. And that's what I'm trying to do here, because that's one thing I didn't find in the other lists of chess fiction that I had found. Now, one of your research interests is uh, the medieval world, and uh, and I know medieval chess as well. And you've you've mentioned how this bibliography could easily become unwieldy, and and that's probably why you have uh, made seventeen hundred the starting point. But given your your interest, it must have been very tempting for you to make this uh, comprehensive bibliography going back to the medieval times. Yes, it was. Uh, and I've even had some colleagues ask me if indeed I would do that. Uh, but I think after finishing this one, that that's going to be it. This has taken a lot out of me. But yeah, um, medieval uh, narratives, uh, there's a lot of chess in there too. Chess was a very popular game in Europe in the Middle Ages. And a lot of the motifs and the subjects that we find in modern uh, chess fiction, we also find in medieval uh, chess fiction. Uh, for example, romance. Uh, and you know, a stereotypical scene, um, or you might even think of uh, Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway in the Thomas Crown Affair. That's a rather uh, 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 romantic and even a little bit steamy kind of a kind of a chess uh, scene. Uh, but the idea of two lovers meeting together over the chessboard in the way in which they play tells you something about how their relationship is developing. Uh, this is something that you can find in uh, medieval romances as well. The very same scene. Now, now you mentioned already how kind of as a starting point, there were other lists out there and, and attempts at bibliographies, but how do you build on that? How do you find the uh, the small chess scene in uh, the book published by some small publishing house or in some short story? That that sounds like a, almost like you have to, you know, read everything that's out there. So, but there must be a, a shortcut. <laughs> well, uh, Google searches have certainly helped. Uh, you know, I, I may be the only person you've ever talked to who has reached page 500 of a Google search. Uh, and let me tell you, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, uh, but it did pay off. And now it is, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, books that are available on Google Books, and you can do searches that way. So that helps a lot. Or if I get a possible title, um, you know, there's a lot of books with chess sounding titles that actually have no chess in them at all. So if I get those, I could uh, see if it's in Google Books and I can do a search and I can very quickly ascertain if there's any chess content or not. Um, uh, I, I've bothered an awful lot of people, including writers. Uh, you know, have you written about chess in your novels? Do you know anybody who has? 
Uh, so you have to become a little bit of a pest sometimes to get at this uh, information. And then, yes, uh, buying a lot of books, which is never a problem for me, uh, and uh, going through them. And, you know, you can skim them rather quickly, looking for chess words and chess terms. Uh, also, because uh, I am associated with a college, uh, I can get a student assistance, hired student assistance, and have them go through books and look for chess terms and mark them. Uh, so in, in all of these different ways, um, but, you know, I've been working on this for a long time. I've done other things in the meantime as well, but it's, it's a very slow, painstaking process. Have you set yourself a target completion date? Uh, yes, the, that occurred about 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the uh, being an academe. Yeah, uh, the point is to be accurate and to be comprehensive, not to be quick. Uh, sometimes uh, the the opposite of journalism. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's been an an ongoing process. Uh, some years have been very fruitful. Some have been rather meager. At this point, I'm pretty much just trying to clean up and organize what I've already got. I'm not actively looking uh, for more works. What does children's chess fiction figure in this bibliography? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I'll have a, a separate section for uh, juvenile uh, chess fiction. There's quite a bit of it. Uh, and a lot of it, is, like with the adult fiction, it's not very good. Uh, the two move scholars mate is perhaps the most common chess game in children's chess fiction. But there's also some really good stuff too. Um, Rosemary uh, Sutliff uh, has got some nice things. Uh, gosh, there was um, uh, Garrett Freeman Wires. The Kings are already here from 2003. I thought that was a particularly touching young adult novel. Uh, so there is some good stuff uh, out there. Uh, so all that will be in this bibliography. So it'll be relatively easy for someone to find uh, some good juvenile chess fiction if they've got perhaps a chess-playing child uh, and wanted to get them some of these books. As you've done this research over the years, you you must have, and I'm talking uh, adult, not necessarily juvenile now, uh, you must have come across some hidden gems that you were previously unaware of. Uh, what, what are some of these that you would recommend to our audience? Oh, sure. Right. Well, you know, there's the well-known ones, uh, Stefan Zweig's uh, Royal Game and Nabokov's Defense and Walter Tevis Queen's Gambit and whatnot. Uh, but some of the, the ones that I did not know about until I uh, began this, uh, Fernando Arabal's The Towers Struck by Lightning from 1988 uh, is, uh, I thought, uh, very well executed. Uh, you have these two grandmasters playing a game, and they each come from very different backgrounds, and their lives intertwine in rather uh, unusual and thoughtful ways. Uh, Thomas Gavin's King Kill from 1977, it's a, it's a terrible title, but of course it just means checkmate, right? Uh, which is about uh, the chess automaton and uh, the um, uh, the misformed uh, man, uh, misshaped man who was inside the machine. 
Uh, I found that a particularly uh, uh, thoughtful uh, and exciting read. Uh, Thomas Glavinick's Carl Hopner's Love of the Draw, which is based on the uh, Lasker-Schlechter uh, match. Uh, I thought the chess in that was well done and uh, a very, very well-written narrative. Uh, Michael Chabon, uh, who's a very good writer, the Yiddish Policeman's Union from 2007, uh, had some very good chess content in it. Uh, and then there's some rather obscure ones as well. Uh, things that perhaps no one has heard of. Uh, William Kent Smith's Incident at the Sicilian Dragon, which is a sort of a Kafkaesque surreal chess novel from 1981. Uh, and then back in the 70s, Paul Holt self-published a novel called Chess and the Single Man. It's satire, it's broadly humorous, and even though it's uh, amateur, it's actually rather well-written and, and quite enjoyable. Uh, if you go back to some old Chess Life magazines from the 70s, he even uh, advertised this novel back then. It's rather hard to come by now. Now, if I'm not mistaken, everything you um, labeled or, or listed just now is a novel. Um, what about short fiction? Uh, oh, the, I've probably got close to um, maybe 800 uh, uh, short, uh, short stories listed in the bibliography. It's enormous. A lot of these were published in chess magazines. Uh, and so a lot of them, it really is kind of insider narratives. It's chess fiction written by and for chess players. Uh, there's, um, oh gosh, uh, all sorts of them. I republished one in the Chess Journalist some years ago, a uh, surreal uh, short stories in which a fellow gets on uh, a subway and um, he ends up in a kind of a chess hell where there's this chess club where all of the worst kinds of people you'll meet in a chess club are there. Uh, you know, the, the potsers who can't help but uh, comment on a game while it's being played, um, the, uh, the losers who complaining they were always sick when they lost, and, uh, you know, the, the egotisticals, the narcissists, uh, uh, the people who smoke and tap on the table, all the annoying people you've ever met in a chess club are gathered there <clears throat> in that story. Uh, that was from the early 20th century, rather well done. I, I could probably go on and on uh, about that. Um, I should mention, though, too, there's also some uh, well-known authors who do sometimes write chess stories. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for example, has got a story, Blackamon uh, the Good, Vendor of Miracles, uh, in which uh, there's uh, his counterpart, Blackamon the Bad. And he's bad because he's an inventor of endless chess games that drove a chaplain mad and brought on two illustrious suicides. Uh, okay, chess and madness. Um, or um, Arthur C. Clarke, the famous uh, science fiction writer, uh, who has the distinction of having the shortest chess short story in my bibliography in which chess destroys the world in 188 words. 
Uh, that sounds very intriguing. Do you happen to know? Uh, I know there's a lot of Arthur C. Clarke and anthologies out there. Do you happen to know which one it might appear in? The name of that story is Quarantine. It was uh, first published in Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine in 1977. There are all sorts of oddities that I've uncovered. Uh, some of them are somewhat well-known and some of which uh, I think are pretty obscure. Uh, Elias Canetti, uh, who's a Nobel Prize winner in literature, in 1935 wrote a novel that was translated as Auto de Fe, uh, which is about the moral disintegration and uh, psychology of fascism. But it, it includes a supporting character named Fischerow, who is this fanatical chess-playing dwarf um, with many similarities to Bobby Fischer. In fact, if you read this novel, you'll be amazed at how prescient it is. Uh, he fantasizes about what he's going to do when he becomes world champion, and he's sure he's going to become world champion. He's going to change his name from Fischerow to Fisher. And he's going to live in a castle in the shape of a rook uh, and various other things. Um, it, it's rather, rather startling just how prescient this novel is, written in 1935, which was what, uh, about 10 years or so before Bobby Fischer was born. And is this Fischer character even spelled with a, with a C or is it just Fischer? Uh, yes, it is spelled with a C, being, being German. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that is a little bit scary, Prussian. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, interestingly, um, uh, Ginsburg had written a rather infamous interview about Bobby Fischer, uh, where a lot of people say he actually slandered Fischer rather badly in that uh, in that piece. And some have speculated that Ginsburg actually uh, reached back into this novel and may have invented quotes from Fisher that actually came out of the novel. Uh, if that's true, it makes the novel a little less prescient, but only a, a little bit less, because I think we know enough about Bobby Fisher to be able to see very clear similarities there. So that that little anecdote uh, about Ginsburg makes me wonder, you know, when you find items to include in the bibliography and you're aware that the author is still alive. Do you contact them as part of this process? I have sometimes contacted living authors, right? Um, I, you know, and, and I don't know if Ginsburg is still around. I wouldn't contact him anyways, because I'm, I, I don't know what kind of an answer he would give other than probably to deny it. Right. Uh, there are a few, um, that uh, I, I would like to contact. Uh, for example, Catherine Neville, uh, who wrote some interesting uh, chess mysteries or chess thrillers, The Eight in 1988, and then uh, a sequel to that called The Fire, um, and another, uh, another novel called A Calculated Risk in 1992. Apparently, she modeled parts of the plot after an actual chess game, but she has never publicly said what that is. She's kind of left it out there for a mystery for people to solve, but apparently nobody has solved that. So I might at some point prevail upon her to see if she'll reveal it to me so I can put it in the bibliography or not. 
And I just realized I completely forgot to ask you a follow-up question about the Soltis murder mystery. Was the chess, you, you mentioned that he had entire chess games in there. Were those essential to the plot, or was that just a case of a, of a chess grandmaster finding it irresistible to include full chess games? Yeah, I don't think it was that essential. X characters are relating to each other. But he could have done that just by a one-paragraph description of the game, which is what other uh, good authors such as uh, Martin Amos will do when writing, trying to describe chess games uh, in their uh, narrative. Uh, interestingly, you know, when we talk about describing a chess game, we find that uh, descriptive notation has a much longer life in chess narrative than it does in chess literature. And the reason for that is because obviously it's more descriptive. Uh, you know, to, to say E4 is pretty abstract, but King's Pawn to King's Fourth Square, that's much more descriptive. It's easier to picture in the mind. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it also sounds more poetic. Right. It does. Um, you know, being able to show rather than tell is pretty basic advice for writing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I have noticed, though, more recently, uh, writers have been more willing to include uh, uh, some kind of algebraic notation. Now, uh, connected to that, I should add that uh, the Soltis novel is not the only one to, com uh, to include complete games in it. Uh, the Arabal novel that I mentioned has got a complete game. And there are many, many others that do have complete games or at least substantial fragments. And whenever possible, I try to include the complete score in my annotation. So for this next part of the discussion, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, chess motifs and, and, and chess metaphors in, in narrative. And you know, I, I know one of your research interests is, as I mentioned earlier, medieval chess, but also chess motifs. Uh, first, please you know, define uh, what is a chess motif and then tell how it can be used in narrative. A chess motif is some reference of chess that may be used metaphorically in a narrative. An obvious example would be if you have a novel that's divided into three parts, and the three parts are labeled opening, middle, and end game. That would be the most obvious kind of chess motif. And so when an author does that, what they're telling us is that life is like a chess game in terms of, you can see it in terms of its beginning and what goes on in the beginning, what happens in the middle portion and what happens toward the end. And uh, to some respects, at least the author uh, uh, would say that that does resemble what happens in a chess game. You open the game and there are all these possibilities and you've got all these hopes and all these dreams about how it's going to turn out. And then you get into the middle game and things are a lot tougher than you thought they were going to be in the opening. And one after another, your plans are not working out because your opponent has got uh, their own plans and they're thwarting your plans. And then you get to the end game. There's not a whole lot of pieces left and maybe there's not a whole lot of choices left and you've got this determination 
you know, you're putting all your hopes on one little past pawn, or you're desperately trying to defend your position as long as you can. Uh, that would be an obvious kind of chess motif. And moving to metaphor, uh, you know, it seems like chess is almost irresistible to writers as a as a metaphor, which means it often I, I find descends into cliche or trope. What has been, in your experience, the or your research, the best example of the chess as life metaphor that you've come across, or or any other type of chess metaphor, if you prefer? Yeah. Um, well, chess is life. Um, one uh, one thing that really can uh, descend into a cliche is uh, having chess pieces come alive, uh, and they're playing the game, but they're living life as the game is being played. Uh, and there's so, so many examples of this. And a lot of amateur writers like uh, to resort to this. And I, I've actually had emails from a number of people who've come up with this idea and says, has anybody done this before? Would this be a good idea? And I, you know, I hate to uh, tell them that, yeah, I have several hundred examples of that in my bibliography. Uh, that would be one very obvious uh, example. Uh, but there's also, I think, maybe a better handling of, of this. Um, uh, oh, the science fiction writer, what's his name? Uh, uh, Bruner, um, uh, Squares of the City, in which he um, has, like, um, oh, shoot, I'm sorry, I'm getting uh, confused here. <laughs> Let me, let's pause here. Brenner's uh, novel, Squares of the City, uh, like uh, Catherine Neville, uh, has modeled a narrative on a chess game. The narrative itself, however, doesn't contain any chess. And uh, so this would be the ultimate, life is like a chess game. The narrative is modeled on an actual chess game that was played, but it's done in such an artful way that you would never know that if you were not told. And then there's various aspects in which uh, life uh, is like chess. Uh, the um, inability to undo a bad decision. You can't take uh, you can't take the move back. Uh, or um, the um, the way you plan something and your plans uh, have been dashed, uh, or the way uh, in which uh, you see you understand life in a term uh, in terms of causality, uh, with various consequences for the choices that you make. Has there been a metaphor that you've come across that? made you just pause and go, wow, that's very original. I've not seen that anywhere else and makes me think about things in a very different manner. At this point, no. It, that was probably true when I first began this, but there, I can't think of any example of a unique metaphor. Nobody else has done that. Um, you know, after looking at uh, a couple of thousand of these, uh, it's amazing. Uh, they're like chess openings, you know, they, they can, they're constantly played uh, with endless variation. So I, I'd like to continue this metaphor talk by quoting something you wrote in that introduction to the book you mentioned earlier, The Masters of Technique, The Mongoose Anthology of Chess Fiction. 
you you wrote there is in fact a sizable subgenre of Holocaust novels featuring chess, often pitting a Jewish underdog against a fascist opponent, as in Paolo Morinzig's The Lunenburg Variation of 1997. Chess has become a rich metaphor of the Jewish experience. You know, please talk about this. This is of interest to me as I have a family that was, uh, you know, very badly affected by the Holocaust. Right, uh, and uh, you know, there is so much Jewish literature about the Holocaust, obviously. Uh, so it's not surprising that at least some of them uh, would be about chess. Uh, plus, the connection uh, of, of chess in Jewish culture is, of course, very significant. Uh, so it's not surprising that a lot of Jewish literature is chess literature, and that a portion of that would be about the Holocaust as well. And, and a lot of it is pitting an underdog against uh, a superior. Uh, and um, there's a handful of, of novels about that, uh, uh, but I, I do think that, uh, um, I'm sorry, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm not keeping up with these names well enough, um, but I do think that Paolo Marenzig's The Lundberg Variation uh, is one of the better examples uh, of that kind uh, of a novel. Um, another thing, too, and um, this is another huge motif, which is chess for a stake. This goes back to um, medieval literature in which you have some hapless person playing against Lady Fortune or playing against death. And the idea, right, that death is coming to get you, but you get to challenge him to a chess game, right? Uh, that's where this comes from. The idea of chess for a stake, that this game is going to cost you something significant. And so you do have um, a, a number of narratives. I think even Vonnegut wrote one of these in which uh, someone is playing against um, a concentration camp officer and he makes the prisoners into living chess pieces. And then he's going to play with the, um, uh, the prisoner who's the chess master. And the prisoner has to make the agonizing choice to sacrifice a piece in order to win the game. Uh, there's a number of stories with the, this motif. Now, if someone who's listening thinks that they may have an obscure reference that they may that you may not have what would be the best way to to reach you and present that to you uh send me an email uh i'm at uh, m-t-a-y-l-o-r at berry b-e-r-r-y dot edu and uh yeah let me know i i should ask uh, as you work at at berry is i'm sorry berry college right not university berry college in rome georgia is there any kind of chess activity at Berry College? Yes. Uh, back when I was uh, much more active, uh, I did uh, start up uh, a chess club uh, at Berry. For a few years, we were actually able to put a chess team together and uh, we're competing in the uh, state college at tournaments. Uh, we never did better than fourth place, uh, but one year we outscored Emory University. So I. I just had to throw that in there. Uh, but that 
<laughs> so we do have a chess club. And that was superior uh, coaching on your part, correct? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually my son who did the coaching. Uh, and uh, the team was, um, I think, very generous in letting an elementary school student uh, coach them in chess. Uh, but there were times, too, when I, I, I brought to some of our international national masters, uh, Carlos Perdomo and Stephen Muhammad to campus to play simuls and give demonstrations uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm curious, your, your son, Paul, is is now an adult. Is, is there any aspect to his personality and his career where you say, you know what, I, I suspect he's this way because he was a chess player? Yeah, uh, he is <clears throat> supremely confident that he can take on anything. He can learn how to do it and very quickly become uh, more than competent at it. And uh, I think that uh, this has helped him uh, in his life and also to get recognition from others that, wow, this is the kind of person we want to have on our team. Here's somebody uh, who is a quick learner, who is a team player and is going to be able to, uh, to get things done. So yeah, there's a a real benefit there. And before I let you go, is there anything we didn't discuss that you'd you'd like our listeners to know? (laughs) Probably an awful lot, but I'll try to... uh, uh, (laughs) Well, let's just limit it to the chest then. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um, One thing I will not say here, but I'll tell you, it will be in the um, bibliography is there was a rather prominent chess journalist in the early 20th century who, in my investigations, I discovered was actually a prolific pornographer and wrote a number of erotic novels under various pseudonyms, at least one of which is a chess novel. Okay, well, that is a great little teaser for your your book, whatever it may be published. (laughs) Right. Uh, so, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for being on on this January edition of One Move at a Time. It's been a fascinating discussion. This I I know I came into this knowing very little about chess fiction, and I'm feeling very uh, much more educated on the topic. So, thank you. Thank you for having me, Dan. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month. And on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you've learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.